I invite you this morning to join me in your copy of the New Testament to Colossians chapter number one. Colossians chapter number one. Throughout the centuries of church history, New Testament believers have formulated creeds and confessions and catechisms to combat the error that sprang up in the church and to clearly articulate orthodoxy in any given doctrine. For example, regarding the doctrine of Jesus Christ, Christology, the Westminster Confession was drafted in 1646, which says this, the Son of God the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature. Many centuries earlier than that, in the year AD 325, the Nicene Creed was written, which says this, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, being of one substance with the Father. Earlier yet than that, in the year 8165, the Apostles' Creed read in this way, I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. But before these, there was another bold statement of Christology. I'd like to call it the Colossian Creed. It's found in our text this morning, Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. And scholars have identified Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20 20 as a hymn of the early church. Now, not a hymn in the sense that it's... uh, metrical in verse and it's sung by instrumental accompaniment, nor are we to think of this hymn in terms of Greek poetic form, but rather the category of a hymn literally means a creed. It means a dogmatic confession of doctrine. In this case, in Colossians 1 verses 15 to 20, it's a a creed or a confession regarding the person of Jesus Christ. And I've Copy this for you on the front of your notes. Creeds and confessions and catechisms are important because they ground us in the truth. And the thing, the important thing about the Colossian Creed is that it predates all others and is found in the Holy Scripture. You see, the verses that we will study this morning are not the formulation of man or of church councils, of of, of theologians, but rather given to us by the Apostle Paul under inspiration of the Spirit of God. Warren Wearsby says that no paragraph in the New Testament contains more concentrated doctrine about Jesus Christ than this one. John MacArthur writes, of all the Bible's teaching about Jesus Christ, none is more significant than this text. It is vital to a proper understanding of the Christian faith. And so from Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20, I prepared a message titled, The Colossian Creed, a bold statement of Christology. Let's pause briefly for prayer, shall we? God in heaven, it is our desire this morning to press on as we follow the cloud of witnesses who have gone before us, those that are named in Hebrews 11, many others since then who have made you 
the center of their lives and the object of their faith. Lord, this morning as we think upon the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that your spirit through your word might show us Jesus. That we might not only have right belief in who Jesus Christ is, but a right love because of who he is. So Lord, we commit our study to you now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's begin reading in Colossians 1, verse number 15. You have your Bibles open before you. Colossians 1, verse 15. He, that is, the son of his love, from verse 13. He, that is, the one in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, verse 14. He is the image of the invisible God. The Colossian Creed here declares that Jesus Christ is, is God. Number one, Jesus Christ is God. The Bible makes it clear that no one has ever seen God for God is spirit. God is invisible. However, the Bible also makes it clear that Jesus Christ is the visible image of that invisible God. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians that Jesus Christ was the very form of God. The writer to the Hebrews claimed that Jesus was the brightness of his glory that is reflecting the attributes of God and the express image of his person. Jesus himself said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. The invisible God became visible in the person of Jesus Christ. You're familiar with John chapter 1 where John makes it clear in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word, the Logos, was with God. And the Word, the Logos, was God. And the Word, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let me take a moment and and explain to you that notion of the Logos or the Word. It was a philosopher named Heraclitus who named the one invisible thing that exists and that never changes. He, He called it to be the Logos. And to Heraclitus, the Logos was the unchanging law or force that controlled everything in the universe. And the Greek word for logos simply means word. It it just means word. But to the philosophers, the logos was that category of of this unknown. The concept of the logos was, was taken over by the Stoics. It was adopted by Philo. And then the Apostle John used it in John 1 to describe the invisible God who became flesh and dwelt among us. And there in John chapter one, the Greek word logos, translated word, was and is God. And the logos, the word, actually became flesh. We, we call it the incarnation, where God took upon flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Colossians one, this creed, this confession is telling us, teaching us that Jesus is God. Now, in the first century, there was an error of false Christology, the doctrine of Christ, that that was manifest in the Colossian church. We call it the Colossian heresy. In the fourth century, there was a heretic named Arius who, who led assault against the deity of Christ. In the 21st century, that's us today, the Jehovah Witnesses cult denies that Jesus is God. The Mormon church claims that Jesus and Satan are brothers. 
but we can go back to the scripture and boldly declare in orthodox Christology, Jesus Christ is God. First John chapter four, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, by this you will know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming. And we speculate about who the Antichrist might be. But the spirit of Antichrist is now already in the world. 1 John chapter 4. 2 John, verses 7 and 9. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ in an orthodox Christology does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. Folks, we might not have everything right in all of the nuances of our sophisticated systems of theology, but we had better get this right. We better be clear on the deity of Jesus Christ. He is God. And he claimed in John chapter 10, verse 30, he declared, I and my Father are one. Of course, those in Jesus' day considered that blasphemy. And they attempted and did, in fact, kill him for that. Look at verse 16, Colossians 1 verse 16. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. We can say number two, Jesus Christ is the creator. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ, number two, is the creator. You can be sure that you are not the result of a cosmic accident. The worlds did not just happen. Jesus Christ created you. Consider some of these facts about creation. The sun, if you think of the sun, the sun is shining this morning. In fact, the sun is shining right into my eyes this morning off of that person's car in the parking lot as it's reflecting through the the glass windows there, and I'm getting the sun right in my eyes. Think of the sun. The sun has a diameter of 864,000 miles, the diameter of the sun able to hold 1.3 million planets the size of Earth inside the size of the sun. The star Betelgeuse has a diameter of 100 million miles, which is larger than the Earth's orbit around the sun. It takes sunlight traveling at 186,000 miles per second, about eight and a half minutes to reach the earth, the sunlight that's glaring in my eye right now, left the sun's surface eight and a half minutes ago. At that same speed, the same light would take more than four years to reach the nearest star to us, Alpha Centauri, some 24 trillion miles from earth. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, contains hundreds of billions of stars. And astronomers estimate that there are millions or even billions of galaxies. They estimate the number of stars to be 10 to the 25th power, which is roughly the number of grains of sand on all the world's beaches. So many galaxies 
we think there may be. Folks, Jesus Christ created all of that. Consider this. Scientists speak of the anthropic principle, which states that the universe appears to be carefully designed for the well-being of mankind. (laughs) You don't say. A change in the rate of the Earth's rotation around the sun or on its axis would be catastrophic. The Earth would become either too hot or too cold to support life. So there is a concern about climate change. I'm not concerned about it. But those who are concerned about climate change understand the precision of climate for the survival of life on this earth. If the moon were nearer to the earth, huge tides would inundate the continents. A change in the composition of gases that make up our atmosphere would also be fatal to life. A slight change in the mass of the proton would result in the dissolution of hydrogen atoms. I'm not sure what I'm talking about, but I'm reading to you That would result in the destruction of the universe because hydrogen is the dominant element. Folks, we could go back to the beginning. We could go to Genesis 1, verse 1, and make a case for creation and all the scientific arguments that might follow. But this morning, we're not necessarily making a case for the marvelous creation, but rather we are celebrating the creator, the one who made it all with his spoken word. Let me remind you again of of John chapter one. I cited a moment ago, in the beginning was the word, that logos. The word was with God, the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is creator. And if you reject creationism, you are rejecting God. Jesus Christ, the creator. Let's continue, verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Verse 17. What can we say? Number three, Jesus Christ is the sustainer. Not only did Jesus Christ create all that is with the word of his power, he sustains it. Allow me to digress again just a bit further with some more science. D. Lee Chestnut wrote a book called The Atom Speaks. And in his book, he describes the puzzle of why the oxygen nucleus holds together. Consider the dilemma of the nuclear physicists. There are eight positively charged protons within the confines of this tiny nucleus. With them are eight neutrons. So there are eight protons, there are eight neutrons, a total of 16 particles, eight positively charged, eight with no charge. Like charges of electricity and like magnetic poles repel each other, and unlike charges of magnetic poles attract each other. This law is called Coulomb's Law of Electrostatic Force and the Law of Magnetism. And once again, I have no idea what I'm talking about, but The question is posed, why doesn't the nucleus of an oxygen atom fly apart? Scientists have dubbed this force that holds it together, the strong nuclear force, but have no explanation for why it exists. 
Carl K. Darrow, a physicist at Bell Laboratories, says, you grasp what this implies. It implies that all the massive nuclei have no right to be alive at all. Indeed, they should never have been created. And if created, they should have blown up instantly. Yet here they all are. Some inflexible inhibition is holding them relentlessly together. How about that? You don't say. It's Jesus Christ. Why doesn't this universe self-destruct or spin out of control? Jesus Christ is not only God. He is not only the creator. He is the sustainer. However, the day will come when God will dissolve that strong nuclear force. The heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. 2 Peter 3, verse number 10. The nuclei of the atoms will fly apart. The universe will literally explode. Folks, I'm not predicting the end of the world I'm describing the end of the world. When Jesus Christ no longer sustains that strong nuclear force. As he upholds all things with the word of his power, Hebrews 1, verse number 3. Look at verse 18. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence I would offer you number four, Jesus Christ is the head. The head. Now, Scripture describes the the church as a family, as a vineyard, as a flock, as a building, and as a bride. But the most powerful metaphor is that of a body. The church is a body, and Jesus Christ is the head. Now, this is not like the head of a company. We think of a CEO. This is not like the head of a line we might Think of a line leader. The body is a living organism and the head is its life. It's its control center. And the degree that our bodies respond to our heads, our bodies will function properly. To the degree that our, our bodies don't respond to our head, we, we, we don't or we can't respond to our heads, we, we suffer. And for that reason, medically speaking, injuries to the head are the most dangerous because malfunction in our heads affects our entire bodies. We understand this metaphor by some of the comments that we make regarding our, our heads, and if we were to think of these things literally, they would actually be funny. So, so think of this. A coach might say to his ball team, don't lose your heads out there on the field or the ball courts. We might demand of our children, what were you thinking? Where was your head? Concerning a a bad circumstance, we might say, I needed that like a kick to my head. Or we might say, get your head screwed on straight. And, And we say these things understanding the metaphor. Spiritually, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He's the head of our local church. The deacons are not the head. There is no synod or presbytery or or pope or ecclesiastical organization that is the head. The pastor is not even the head a shepherd, a leader, but not the head. The impulses of our church, the life of our church ought to come from its head, Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ is the head. Consequently, Jesus Christ is preeminent, number five. Jesus Christ is preeminent. Now, if we were to look back to verse number 15, you you, you perhaps thought that I had skipped verse 15b. says that Jesus was the firstborn over all creation. You see it there in verse 15. Also then in verse 18, the firstborn among the dead. The, The word firstborn, the idea of the firstborn in verse 15 and verse 18 does not mean first in chronology. It is first in position or first in rank. In both Greek and Jewish culture, the firstborn meant the first in importance, not necessarily the first in birth order. For example, Solomon was certainly not the firstborn of all of David's sons, yet he is named the firstborn in Psalm 89, verse 27. Although Esau, remember Esau and Jacob, Esau was the first of the twins born chronologically, it is Jacob who is called the firstborn and received the inheritance. Colossians 1 verse 15 declares Jesus to be the firstborn over all creation. It's not that he was the first one born of all creation, but he's the first in preeminence. In fact, it's the, uh, the Arians of the early church who used this verse and this idea to, to falsely claim that Jesus was created or born. The, the Jehovah Witnesses today describe Jesus as a created being, first to be born and not God. But Jesus Christ is not the first created being. Again, I could cite John chapter one. He's first in authority. He has preeminence over his creation. In verse 18, when Paul says that Jesus was called the firstborn from the dead, he's not the first of all those who have been raised from the dead. He's the highest in rank of all who will ever be raised from the dead. And verse 19 drives home that point. Verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should should dwell. All the fullness of God, the divine powers and the attributes are all embodied in Jesus Christ. He is preeminence. And as a point of application for us this morning, as we think of Jesus as the firstborn of all creation, the preeminent one of all creation, the firstborn from alive from the dead, the, the first, the preeminent one, As a point of application, where should Jesus Christ be in the order of our lives? Is Jesus Christ the one to whom we give attention on Sunday mornings? Or is he the one to whom we give attention and affection at the top of every day? Or at the beginning of every circumstance or project or cause? He is preeminent. And he needs to be in that place. Verse 20. Verse 20. And by him, to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. This Colossian creed, this confession, this ancient hymn, what can we say about Jesus? He's God He's the creator, he's the sustainer, he's the head, he's preeminent. Verse number 20, Jesus Christ is our savior. And the final statement of this Colossian creed is that Jesus is our savior, our peacemaker, reconciling us to God by his shed blood on the cross of Calvary, saving us, redeeming us, purchasing us with his blood. 
It was a cold winter day. But the heat from the burning house kept the onlookers from getting too close. Tongues of fire leaped from every window and smoke billowed through the high, billowed high above the roof. And the house was sure to be a total loss. When screams for help were heard coming from within the house, a man in a long trench coat separated himself from the crowd and rushed toward the blaze. The crowd gasped as the man dashed up the steps and disappeared into the smoke and flame. After what seemed like an eternity, the man emerged, his body engulfed in fire. Under his trench coat were two children, one in each arm. People in the crowd pulled the children away from the burning man and others hurried to put out the flames that engulfed him. Barely alive, the man in the trench coat was rushed to the hospital. The two children were saved that day with hardly a scratch, but their parents were lost in the fire. Months passed, and the courtroom of that small town was packed. Arguments were being heard by those who sought custody of the two orphaned children. You see, no will had ever been prepared, and no immediate relatives remained. And so one at a time, various people presented reasons why they were best suited for legal custody of the children. Each person was allowed to present their claims for the children. One man, a prosperous lawyer, explained why why he was financially prepared to care for the children, to give them a comfortable life. I can meet their needs, the wealthy lawyer said. I have a large home. These are my claims. A lady, 25 years as a teacher, explained that she would be able to give them a good education. I can teach them everything. That is my claim. A distant relative, second cousin, in fact, argued that maintaining a family connection was a priority. Blood relationship was his claim. But just then, a man humbly stepped from the back. He was wearing a trench coat, a new trench coat, much like the one he was wearing months earlier on that cold winter day. He slipped off the coat and unbuttoned his shirt and stretched out his arms to reveal ugly, twisted, scarred flesh. The consequences of the burns from the day he saved the lives of those two children. These are my claims, he said. These scars are my claims. Folks, Jesus Christ bears the scars of the sacrifice that he made to save us. Those scars are yet visible in his resurrected body. He showed his disciples the prints of the nails in his hands, the wound in his side. Jesus shed his blood on the cross of Calvary. He made a claim to us. Jesus Christ is our Savior. And folks, it may be easy for us to affirm the Colossian Creed, this statement of Orthodox Christology. We might all agree that Jesus is God, that Jesus is creator, he's sustainer, head and preeminent. But can you affirm that Jesus Christ is your savior? He made claim to you by his death on the cross. I hope that an orthodox Christology is not only a matter of of church history, 
It's not only a matter of Bible doctrine. It's not just intellectual arguments, but that it's a personal relationship that you have in believing in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin because Jesus is our Savior. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven above, thank you for Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Lord, this morning there are many, most, perhaps all, who believe that Jesus is God, he's the creator and such. But there may be some who have not yet trusted, called on the name of the Lord in faith, believing in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We understand that he has made claim to us through his shed blood. I pray that you would in your grace grant any unbeliever the faith to believe this morning and trust you. And for the rest of us, may we with one voice sing, hallelujah, what a savior. For I pray this in his name, amen.